1938, at a place called a rugby school, a man by the name of Eric Bash, I'm sorry, Eric Nash, whose nickname was Bash, gave a sermon about Pilate's question, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And Bash was not a very academic man. He was not a very athletic man, but what he did have was charm. And he had a conviction that Britain needed Christ. And his aim was to see Christ come to Britain by seeing the conversion of, of young men saved. And one of the boys that he preached to that day and who heard the sermon about Pilate was John Stott, who would later become one of the greatest leaders of evangelicalism. In fact, in 2005, Time magazine considered him one of the top 100 most influential men of the 20th century. And he, would, he even continues after his death today to, to influence the church um, and influence the world in a positive manner through his dozens of books that he wrote and through the conferences and um, really even organizations that he helped found and establish. What I want you to see is that that would not have happened if it wasn't for the simple ministry of, of Eric Nash or a man called Bash. So what I want to talk to you tonight is about this, about the importance of intergenerational ministry. And that's the fancy terminology, but what I mean by that is the importance of the older generation investing into the younger generation. A word even more common is discipleship. But before I get there, I was asked a few weeks ago at lunch with um, Harvey and Carl and Jack and Judy if I would tell an informa- a little bit of information about myself during the sermon. I took that as a sign that it would be nice to know just a little bit about me. Uh, I was born in the year 1991. I am a young buck. <laughs> I was born to very godly and loving parents, and I was raised in a small town of, eh, well, it's probably now 40 or 50,000. It's been growing steadily the longer it's been in existence. But I was raised in a small town. I had very godly and loving parents, but I was raised in very unhealthy churches, very unhealthy churches. Um, the gospel was pretty much not preached. If it was, it wasn't done very well. Theology wasn't taught. What was taught wasn't really correct. Um, but I, I did have godly parents to make up for some of that. And uh, I was a Pharisee by nature growing up. I, I knew the gospel. I knew it was true, but I did not want to trust in Jesus for salvation. I wanted to be my own savior. I wanted law to save me. I wanted to be independent. I was very arrogant, very prideful. And it was at a sermon um, that I attended with my dad. It was actually a revival, one of those things you don't see much anymore. <laughs> we had a week of preaching aimed at evangelistic preaching. And there's a guy there named Rick Corum. He was, he was a great preacher. He was very entertaining, very funny, and very witty and clever. But that night, he did not preach a very witty and clever sermon. That night, he preached on hell. And uh, I knew that God's hand was heavy upon me from the start of that sermon because I felt like I was having a heart attack. I thought it was just... And I, I knew I was a sinner. I knew I deserved God's judgment. I knew that the judgment for that sin would be hell. And I didn't want that. I saw that it was foolish for me to continue living the way that I did. And so I looked to my dad with tears pouring down my face. And if you don't know anything about me, I am not a crier. I am one of the least emotional people you'll ever meet. But I was very emotional at that point in time because the hand of God was on me. I was being regenerated. I was being brought to life. So at 13... I literally had the hell scared out of me by God. Um, He saved me. After that came another significant point in my life. At the age of 17, I accepted a call to ministry. Uh, I 
got involved with the college ministry at my church, even though I was in high school at that time. I had a lot of leadership development poured into me by my dad, by my Sunday school teacher, by some other people at that time. Even went to leadership retreats and conferences, got exposed to some really good examples. And I grew a love for the preached word, especially by um, Matt Chandler, um, John MacArthur, guys like that who really emphasized the sufficiency of the Bible for all of life, including church, including church life. And so I, I recognized that I was being called to ministry. Um, and I was terrified of ministry. I, I did not want to go into ministry. I, like Moses, I, I gave a list of reasons to God why I did not belong in ministry. And uh, don't ever argue with God. It just won't ever work. <laughs> um, he just kept showing me over and over again the reasons I had were rubbish because he's the one who equips people for ministry, and he is the one who empowers people for ministry. And so whoever he calls will be in ministry by his work. So that was at 17. I made my calling public to my dad first, and then I made it public at a conference on uh, January the 1st. I can't remember the year anymore because I have a terrible memory for years. Four years later, uh, another significant thing happened in my life. I met a woman named Cecil Hompson, and I wanted her. <laughs> so I pursued her, and I tricked her into marrying me, and <laughs> we have been happily married for almost two years now. In June, it'll be two years. So at 13, I was saved. At 17, I was called to ministry. And at 21, I got married. So something significant happens every four years of my life. So at 25, I may either be a daddy, a pastor, or dead. <laughs> um, God has been very gracious to me. I, I'm here because of grace. And a lot of that grace has been given to me through the older generations of the church um, through my dad, through faithful preachers of the word, through professors I encountered at, at Boys College, including Dr. Payne, and now the senior men that I have in the Sunday school class. So that's what I want to talk to you tonight, is the importance of intergenerational ministry. So turn with me, please, to Titus 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. The title of my sermon is Sound Doctrine, colon, modeled and taught by the older generation to the younger generation. So the main point of this sermon is that sound doctrine is to be modeled and taught by the older generation of the church to the younger generation of the church. If you fail to see this by the end of this sermon, I have failed you as a preacher because I think this is what the main point of this passage is. So to the text, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So that is the passage for this evening. So before I get to the specifics of the text, it may be helpful just to share a little bit about the book. It was written from Paul to Titus. It's specifically written for him. It has most application to pastors, but because it is inspired by God and breathed out by God, it has application for all of us today. And what he wanted Titus to do in this letter is to finish the establishment of the church. And he wanted Titus to do that by 
appointing elders or pastors in the different areas of Crete where he was ministering at, and he wanted to prepare these elders by being a model elder to them. By Titus's conduct, they would learn how to live and how to lead as an elder or a pastor. By Titus's teaching, they would know how to teach and what to teach as an elder and as a pastor. So in light of that, this passage is an example of what Paul wants Titus to teach to the church and how he wants the church to be structured. So we've talked a little bit about the book, and we'll talk a little bit about the text now. The structure or the layout or the logic of this text is very easy to understand. In verse 1, he's going to give a charge to teach sound doctrine. In verses 2 through 6, he's going to teach what behavior and what practices accord with sound doctrine. So that's it. Pretty simple, right? I don't think it's any difficult. All right. Now, Paul will have four different audiences in mind. First, it'll be older men, and then it'll be older women, and then it'll go to younger women, and then it'll go to younger men. Those are his audiences. So Titus would teach all of these age-sex groups, but really there are only two commands, and it's to the older people. It's not to the younger people. So that is about the text. We've already talked a little bit about the book, so now let's get into the text. Let's get into the real meat and potatoes here. So the text begins, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, although Paul is going to move very quickly from this initial charge to the content of the charge and the verses that follow, I do not want you to see this verse as insignificant. This verse is the foundation that the rest of it is built upon. If you miss this verse, you're going to miss all the rest of it, really. So Paul will have much to say about doctrine or theology in just a few simple words. But before we get there... This section or this passage is connected to the previous passage, and we know that by the words, but as for you, that begin it. And so that you're not confused and don't feel cheated by me as a preacher, I'm going to say just a little bit about the previous passage. What Paul had just done was told teachers to be unlike the false teachers in Crete that were in the surrounded area. They were spreading false teaching. As Dr. Payne has showed us in 1 Timothy, false teaching is deadly to the church. For one, it destroys the false teachers. And two, if it goes unchecked and unchallenged, the false teaching can destroy the church, which is really an affront against God, and it's an affront against the gospel. So Paul wants Titus to teach sound doctrine in contrast to the false doctrine or unsound doctrine of the false teachers. So that's a connection. Make sense? Cool. All right. So Paul will have much to say about doctrine or theology with just a few words. The first thing he's going to teach us is that doctrine is never neutral. Doctrine is never neutral. It is either sound or unsound. So what is the meaning of sound here? The word originally had the idea of well-being. It applied to health, to bodily health. And with time, the Greeks applied it to the mind in particular instances, and that's what's happening here. He's saying that doctrine is to be sound, more like being correct. It's supposed to be right. It's supposed to be true. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry, my throat is very dry. Now, this word, this, this message that he just gave us, that sound doctrine is to be either right or true. Um, it's to be sound. It can be very, very scary, especially for those of us who do theological work or doctrinal work. But at the same time, it can be scary for just the rest of us because all of us do theological work in one way or another. All of us teach doctrine. You teach your kids doctrine at home. You teach your co-workers doctrine at work. You teach your neighbors doctrine in your area, in your neighborhood. And you teach each other doctrine in the church. 
everyone is a theologian in some regard. It's because we all teach doctrine in one way or another. Through our ordinary speech, we reveal our doctrine, and through our ordinary actions, we reveal our doctrine. So hear this. Your doctrine is always on display. It is always, always, always on display. This is one of the reasons why Karl Barth, the famous evangelical theologian, said that our theology is always a work of faith. Because in our sinfulness, we're always going to end up communicating unsound doctrine at one point or another. So he, he noticed that in order to be a theologian, you have to have a gospel. <laughs> so thank God for the cross because our doctrine needs it. Our doctrine is never neutral. It is always either sound or unsound, true or untrue. Second, Paul is going to tell us that doctrine is supposed to be the foundation of all teaching in the church. So what Paul is about to teach Titus, and he wants Titus to teach others, is that all teaching must accord with sound doctrine. And the way to translate this is supposed to be fitting the sound doctrine. It's almost like those who do theological work are always using two hands. In the one hand, they, they have the truth that they absolutely know to be the truth. They absolutely know that it's true because it's been preached and passed down from generation to generation. On the other hand, you, you take these new truths, these additional truths that are being taught to you, you're supposed to put them right next to each other and make sure that they, that they fit, that they work. Like the children's story, you take the rectangular, pre, the rectangular peg, you're going to make sure it fits into the square hole. you know, Because yeah, if it doesn't, it's not sound doctrine. It's not true doctrine. It's false doctrine. It's false teaching. Another way to say it is that the, the face of teaching should always bear the family resemblance of doctrine. So here's a warning for all of us. Sometimes the doctrine that we hear will wear a mask. It'll look and sound so much like sound teaching, like true doctrine. But with time, there's going to be sweat that begins to drip from underneath the mask. And you're going to smell that odor, that odor of false teaching. With time, false teaching always shows itself to be false. What you're supposed to do whenever this comes about is either run from this teaching like the plague or cast it out like the demon it is because it's false teaching. It's really demonic and it's an origin, and it's hostile to, to God and to us as Christians. So our doctrine is to be the foundation of all teaching. So Paul's just given the charge to teach sound doctrine. What he's going to do next is show us that doctrine is never alone. Our doctrine is never alone. So hear this. There will always, 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 always be behavior that follows theology. Before I get to that point, I'd like to give a few words of my own about this. First, if our doctrine is merely abstract, if it's merely conceptual, and if it's practically irrelevant to life, it doesn't actually touch down, this is incomplete theology. And that fits unsound theology. Second, if our behavior does not accord with our doctrine, somewhere we're not actually believing our own doctrine. This is what happens whenever we sin, right? This is something that Dr. Payne teaches us all the time. If, if you believe the truth and you live in contrast to it, you're not actually believing that truth. Um, but that's not the only time that we sin. Um, that is incomplete theology. There are also times where we sin because we never had right doctrine to begin with. We never had sound doctrine to begin with. This is incorrect theology. All this is unsound theology. So unsound theology is incomplete, it is inconsistent, and it is incorrect. So instead, sound doctrine is supposed to be relevant to life. It's supposed to be realized in the Christian, and it's supposed to be right with, with God's word. So Paul is about to show us that doctrine is never alone. And again, he's going to categorize us in the four kinds of people. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. 
And he's going to have a message for each age and each sex. But he'll begin with older men, which is what we're going to see right now. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, I can get myself into some trouble by distinguishing between who is an older man and who is a younger man. But I can get myself into a whole, whole, whole lot of trouble if I distinguish between who is an older woman and who is a younger woman. So I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to make a preface of this. Physical age is not the ultimate factor in these categorizations. Whenever he's making these categorizations of us, spiritual maturity is the main, the main factor that, that distinguishes an older from a younger believer. So as Christians get older, you would expect more, more maturity in them. You would expect them to have more sound doctrine. You would expect them to live more in accordance with sound doctrine. That's expected. It's not always the case, but it is the norm. So what does sound doctrine look like for older men? First, they are to be sober-minded. Now, this word can actually be translated sober because originally it was applied to bodily sobriety, to not being drunk. But it was applied to the mind also by the Greeks to say that um, in cases like this, older men are to be sober in their thinking. They're not to be intoxicated in their thinking. This fits sound doctrine. Second, older men are to be dignified. What this... What this Greek word has behind it is the idea of a man being serious. He has a heaviness about him, a a gravity about him, which then elicits respect from others. It doesn't mean you can't laugh every now and again. It's, It's more the idea that you have a purpose and a calling. You're aware of it, and you live in light of it. Third, older men are to be self controlled. This is a man who is marked by an awareness of his responsibilities. He takes control of himself, and he takes control of his life. Again, this fits with sound doctrine. Fourth, older men are to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. Now, these words here, faith, love, and steadfastness, they have so many usages in the New Testament. So it's, it's really hard to know what exactly Paul is getting at here because there's not a whole lot in the context to go by. But I still have my own theory, and I'm going to give you my own theory. I think Paul is shifting from the vertical to the horizontal, to the personal aspects of the dimension, well, the personal aspects of the Christian life. So vertically is what faith is. Mankind or man, older men, are supposed to have faith or a trust in God. And horizontally, they're supposed to have a love for others, caring for the needs of others. And then personally, they're supposed to be steadfast, resolute in their courses of action. So that's why I think is happening here. It could be the case or it could not be the case. Um, I'm willing to say I'm wrong, but... It's just an attempt to understand what Paul is getting at here. So we know what Paul says, but why does he choose these characteristics as opposed to the other? I have a theory, and I'm going to share them. It could very well be that older men get senile, and they get silly, and (laughs) they get lazy the older they get. I'm sure that does happen to some. I've, I've met a few who are like that. But I think it's valid to look at it a different way. I don't think that... That all old men are senile and silly and lazy. I think what Paul is getting at is that older men are supposed to be the primary example in the church. He expects them, in a way, to be the primary leadership within the church. And in order to be that, they they have to have these characteristics um, matching their life. But we do know in this passage that that Paul focuses on self-control, that we're going to see that with the older men explicitly, we're going to see that with the younger women explicitly, we're going to see it with the younger men explicitly. So why does he focus on self-control four times in this passage? 
In the previous part of this book, Paul used a quote from a Cretan prophet who described their own behavior, their own lifestyles. And this guy said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That came from one of their own. This would be like an American calling us the land of the fat, the stupid, the arrogant, and the ignorant, you know, which there is some truth to that, but it, it would be like, wow, really? You're saying that about us? So that's how a Cretan, one of their own, described them. So the Cretans naturally lack self-control. And just as Paul wanted Titus to be a contrast to the false teaching in Crete, so also he wants believers to be a contrast to the lack of self-control of the unbelievers in Crete. So does that make sense? Yeah, cool. And I also know that Paul focuses with older men intentionally. That's because whatever the older men do, the rest of the church will follow. Self-control must begin with the older men for the older women to follow suit. Self-control must begin with the older women for the younger women to follow suit. And self-control must begin with the older men for the younger men to follow suit. So old men, do not let this way fall off your shoulders. You are to be the primary examples of self-control in the church. So we've seen quickly what self-control looks like for older men. Now we're going to see what self-control looks like. I'm sorry, a sound doctrine. We saw what sound doctrine looks like for older men. Now we're going to see what sound doctrine looks like for older women. And again, I'm not going to say what age differentiates the older and the younger. It's more about maturity. Okay. So Paul's going to give us four characteristics that describe the older women who possess sound doctrine. First, they are to be reverent. Now, the word here originally had the idea of being a, a temple worshiper. That's what it was associated with. So what it's referring to is the quality of behavior that, that fits women who are involved with religious matters. So whenever you're around a woman who's reverent, you feel like you're around a worshiper of God. That's the first way to describe older women. Second, older women are not to be slanderers. To slander someone is to speak a word against them, especially if they're not around, that would harm their reputation before others. And this, this happens intentionally and unintentionally all the time. All the time. And to give an example, whenever I, I went to church with my grandmother from the hills, I, my family comes from the country. I was raised in the city, but my family comes from the country. Um, whenever I would go to church with my grandmother, um, it, before the, the preaching and, and worship actually began, it was just gossip hour. But, but they would do it in a way that sounded sweet and innocent. And they say, I love them to death, but... Or, Bless her heart, she, or I got something y'all need to pray about. Um, here. And then after that, you would hear the worst things you could hear about someone. Which, which, which I mean, that, that's slander. <laughs> it really is slander. So, women, older women, I love you guys. Please don't do this. All right, please don't, don't do that. Don't be a slanderer. Control your speech. Show some self-control with your speech. This, this fits sound doctrine. Third, older women are not to be slaves to what's mine. Now, women, Paul's on to you. He knows what you drink whenever your husbands aren't around. All right? You say the moonshine is cough medicine, but we know what it's actually for. All right? Th- this was actually a shock to me. I have never seen an older woman drunk before, never in my life. But apparently it was a huge problem in, in Crete. And we know that drunkenness itself was a problem in Crete. So older women, show self-control with how much you drink. Okay? This fits sound doctrine. Fourth, older women are to teach what is good. Now, the word here, this is like a single word in Greek. It, it appears to be made up by Paul, which theologians are good at, aren't they, Brian? I think your favorite is inaugurated eschatology, right? It is, yeah. 
Um, but, I mean, it's still a good word. It has the idea here of teaching what is held in high respect. So older women are to teach what is held in higher respect. And they're to teach so that they can train the younger women. The word here for train has the same root as self-control. Although it's not the same meaning, it has the same root behind it. And it's, again, it's the, the same thing is repeated throughout all this. We saw this idea with older men. We're going to see it with everyone else and all the ages and all the sexes. So it has the idea of older women giving instruction to younger women in meeting obligations and standards. This fits sound doctrine. So we've seen what older women, oh, sorry, we've seen what sound doctrine looks like for older men. We've seen what sound doctrine looks like for older women. Now we're going to see what sound doctrine looks like for younger women. And it's the same thing that the older women are to teach to the younger women. Here's the text. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So what does sound doctrine look like for younger women? Paul has given us six characteristics. Now, the text here began with the first two, with loving their husbands and children. This is actually two separate words in Greek, and they're more like adjectives, where it's more like a lover of man and a lover of children. And the lover of man here originally had the idea of, of a socially conscious individual. They, they were aware of mankind. They were a lover of mankind. And then with time, it was applied to just a single man, to their own man. So women love your man. Stand by your man. I think that's how the song goes, right? <laughs> so it is a woman who is attentive to the needs and the care of her own husband. And second is lover of children. This is a woman, again, who is attentive to the needs and cares for her own children. Both of these characteristics fit sound doctrine. Third, younger women are to be self-controlled. This is the same idea as above. They are marked by an awareness of their responsibility. They take control of their selves. They take control of their lives. This is the main idea we're going to see repeated throughout in this behavioral passage. Self-controlled fits sound doctrine. Fourth, younger women are to be pure. Now, this usually relates to a deity, but since the main idea of what characterizes younger women who possess sound doctrine fits the home, it may very well be that this is applied to the husband more so than to God. But either way, the idea has being abstaining from, from adultery, um, whether it's against God or against man, that this fits sound doctrine. Fifth, this is the one that's most controversial, working at home. That's what describes or characterizes the young woman who possesses sound doctrine. Now, this can also be translated as devoted to the home or busy at homemaking. And since this is so debatable and misunderstood, I'm going to spend just a few minutes here to make sure it makes sense. Um, let me preface this by saying I want to be sensitive to everyone involved. I want to be sensitive to the wives. I want to be sensitive to the husbands. I want to be sensitive to the children. So first, some women have to work outside the home. That's just, it's just a fact of reality. Sometimes women have to work, especially if they're single moms or especially if they have a husband that's disabled. They, they simply have to work. And if this is your circumstance, really do not feel guilty for working. That's what you have to do. And in this case, I would say that's what being devoted to your home actually looks like. So some women have to work. So there are some women that want to work. I don't think this is wrong in and of itself. I don't think it's sinful in and of itself, but I think it can lead to sin without caution, without boundaries. According to Paul and to God, your, your priority, your main priority is to be the home. So if your husband and children suffer because of your career, you are in sin. Um, because you're more devoted to yourself and your selfish goals than you are to your home. 
In this case, I would suggest you find a different God, not a different God, a different job, or find, uh, or really even just quit working altogether if you can't handle a career. But I do think there are circumstances and situations where both the men and the women have to work um, to support their homes. And this, this can, again, be a sign of devotion to the family. This can be a sign of working at home. But I would say before you do that, first discern your actual situation to make sure you have to work. Because there is a difference between having both the husband and the wives working out of a necessity for the income for survival and uh, taking dual incomes because of a desire for more wealth and more comfort. There is a big difference between necessity and desire. And I would say that showing the priority to the home would be that if you simply desire to work, that's, that's not really what should be happening. So Dr. Oreck said it well. Um, he said, I... Well, and we'll give you some context here. Dr. Work is a great professor and one of the most godly men of Boyce College. And in class, he talked about how much he hated this, this, this culture that says that women have to work. Really, this feminist culture says women have to find their identity and their value in, in having a career. And he said that raising children and being a faithful wife is one of the most important jobs in the entire world. Now, I would add it's one of the hardest because I, I served in the nursery at 9th and O. Women, you have my respect. I don't, I don't know how you do it all day, every day, in and out. So you have my mad respect. So being devoted to the home fits sound doctrine. That was a word for the women. Now I have a word for the husband with, with regard to that. Men, don't force your wives to work when they don't have to and they don't want to. Her God-given home is... I'm sorry, her God-given priority is the home. If you put a different priority on her, that's sin for you. Because you're, you're not showing the priority that God has for her in her life. And again, some circumstances require both husband and wife's work. That's not a problem. Don't feel guilty for that. Just make sure it's out of necessity and not out of desire. So that was a long one. Six, younger women are to be kind. Um, this has the idea of having a high standard of interest in meeting the needs of others. I think it may particularly relate to the husband and to the children. I know that Cisa needs an abundant amount of kindness to tolerate me all day. And she's going to need it whenever I give her triplets her own someday. <laughs> I'm actually a triplet if you didn't know that. So, identical triplet. Seventh, younger women are to be submissive to their own husbands. I am so thankful that Denny Burke preached this a few weeks ago because now I don't have to address it fully like he did. Um, Simply put, women are to respect and follow the leadership of their husbands, whether the husband is being the wisest man or not. But they are not to submit to the request of the husband that will lead them into sin. In that case, faithful submission to the greater husband, Jesus, um, takes precedence. So holy submission to sound doctrine from the husband fits with sound doctrine. So have you noticed a similar theme or a similar pattern with the younger women here? I mean, it began with the husband, a love for the husband, and it ended with submission to the husband. It's like bookends. I think it shows that the main priority for younger women is to be the home. And it also lets us know why Paul spent so much time talking about this woman. It's because that's why they had to spend most of their time worrying about and struggling about. Is how in the world do I raise kids? How do I submit to my husband? How do I, how do I work a home? How do I manage a home well? So it makes sense as to why that's what his focus is for younger women. It also makes sense why he commands the older women to teach the younger women these things because they've had to live these things. They, they've, they've learned what it means to love a husband and submit to a husband and love children and, and um, raise them up well. 
So, what did I want to focus on tonight? Does anybody remember? The importance of intergenerational ministry. Right here, we have the first example. Um, Older women investing into younger women. They invest into younger women by teaching them practical, sound doctrine regarding the home, which makes sense. But it's not only the example, it is also a command. While Paul charges Titus to teach this doctrine, and we would expect future pastors and theologians to teach this doctrine, his primary concern is older women being the teachers of sound doctrine that's practical in nature to younger women. And while younger women would hear this from Titus and they would hear it from future pastors and theologians, his primary concern is for younger women to hear this from older women. So that is his primary concern. It is God's design here for the church to be intergenerational. We don't only have the example, we don't only have the command, we also have the reason for intergenerational ministry here. It says that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, the word here, reviled, can also be translated blasphemed. So that is speech that is an affront against deity, an affront against God. What I want you to see here is as significant is that speech and words isn't required for God to be blasphemed. Here, ironically, it's the lack of words that would cause God to be blasphemed. It's the lack of older women teaching younger women that would cause the word of God to be reviled. So that's significant. Behavior that contradicts sound doctrine is actually blasphemy against the God of sound doctrine. That hits home heavy. So again, thank God for the cross because our behavior is often unsound, which shows our doctrine to be unsound, which means that we're reviling God. We are living and walking revilers, which is why we need the work of Christ so much. So we've seen what sound doctrine looks like for the older men. Now we've seen what it looks like for the older women and the younger women. Now we're going to see what sound doctrine looks like for the younger men. We're also going to see how they're supposed to receive it. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So that's the only characteristic he provides for younger women. He provided younger men. He provided four for older men, four for older women, like six for, for younger women. He only gives one for the young men. So why is that? It's because I, I can tell you I lived with young men for four years. It, it, it might be hard enough just for us to learn self-control. I am not joking on some of the things that I saw here. I'm going to tell you some of the things I saw in the dorms. Rooms were absolutely disgusting. Everything that could be on the floor was on the floor. Everything was disorganized. I hated walking into some other people's rooms. Laundry was held off until after the last minute. You open up a closet door, and you just... Really, you can sit on someone's bed. You can just smell the odor of clothes and, and what else is coming out. It's just... Ugh. Believe it or not, there were like 50 showers in Carver at the time. Like, guys wouldn't even bathe regularly. They wouldn't bathe regularly. They would walk around smelling with their hair everywhere. It was terrible. You know, they wouldn't go to class sometimes. They wouldn't do their assignments sometimes. I mean, if, <laughs> even if they did it well. Um, so, I mean, just men, young men, tend to be terrible at self-control. So, that's why he just mentions only self-control for younger men. That's what they need to focus on. So that is the behavioral emphasis of this passage over and over and over and over again is self-control. Why? Because the Cretans lacked it. Why did the Cretans lack self-control? Because they did not have sound doctrine. So Christians are to be self-controlled because they possess sound doctrine. We possess the gospel. We believe in the life, death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we believe in our own death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. And because we possess that gospel, because we possess sound doctrine, we should accord 
with our sound doctrine. We should fit our sound doctrine. Our behavior should match sound doctrine. So that's what sound doctrine should look like for younger men. Now we're going to see how they're supposed to receive it. I want you to look at the word likewise here in this text. It's used twice. First, the older women were to be likewise to older men and that they were to to model sound doctrine. Second here, Titus was to be likewise to the older women. Just like the older women not only modeled sound doctrine but also taught it to younger women, so also Titus, as a mature man, was to model and teach sound doctrine to the younger men. So another way to put this is that older men are to model and teach sound doctrine to younger men. So there's a few significant things I want you to see here in this passage all together. First, notice here that all generations receive the same sound doctrine. Like this same teaching goes to all people in the church. But it, it, it behaviorally manifests itself differently for each sex and for each generation. That's pretty significant. Second, all generations are required to teach this sound doctrine to younger generations. All of us begin as younger men and younger women. All of us naturally become older women and older men. And because of that, we are to take the same doctrine that we've learned from the older ones and pass it off to the younger ones. Third, all generations model this doctrine and teach this doctrine so that the word of God may not be reviled. The goal of intergenerational ministry, the goal of discipleship, is the reverence of God and the place of the revilement of God. So how does this relate to all of us? All of us here in this room, every single one of us, is called to intergenerational ministry. All of us here are called to receive sound doctrine from the older generations. All of us here are called to give sound doctrine, practical doctrine, to the younger generations. But I want you to recognize, even if you think you haven't been doing this, you have. Inaction is itself a doctrine. It's just a bad doctrine. right? It's an unsound doctrine. And by inaction, you're actually telling the younger generations that they aren't important. Which I had to suffer that in, in high school. That They did not care about the youth groups in high school at all. We were just being babysat during the time. They did not care about investing in us. That's why I went to the college ministry, because they actually cared about the younger generations. So if you are inactive with intergenerational ministry, you're actually telling the younger generations they aren't important. You're also teaching them about their unsound behavior, one, that their behavior is okay whenever it's not, and two, that they'll learn what to do on their own. They won't, trust me. (laughs) I've lived with guys for four years who didn't learn (laughs) what self-control looked like. By inaction, you're disobeying God's command through Paul. And by inaction, you're causing the word of God to be reviled. That's a hefty weight. And the younger people, by inaction, by not looking for sound doctrine in the older people, you're actually telling them that they aren't necessary. They're a bunch of old people who don't know what they're talking about. They're not hip and cool enough. You're telling them that it's okay for them to disobey God's word. And by inaction, you are allowing yourself to revile God's word, to be a blasphemer. But I don't want to end there on a sad note. I want to end on some encouragement and motivation. The older men in this church have been a great blessing to me. Um, And I'm just going to give a few examples here. They they have modeled and taught sound doctrine to me. And the first example is actually Carl. Uh, let Let me say this. Carl has shown me one of the best examples of humility I have ever seen in my life. I am actually the, the Sunday school teacher for the senior men's Sunday school class. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I actually am. And it's actually because Carl asked me to consider taking over the class after I offered to teach one week and then taught. He, just, he offered me the class. 
I have never in my life seen a man offer his class to a younger man. That does not happen. They do not pass it off to whippersnappers. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. And that is such an example of humility. Um, thank you, Carl. And thank you for the other men for listening to me and for allowing me to teach you. Because um, I take down the average age by a couple of decades in that class. <laughs> From Joe, I learned what it looks like to love a wife who's suffering. Um, Joe, I ask him every Sunday how his week is. And every week, he doesn't respond by talking about himself. He responds by talking about his wife. He identifies his joy and his sorrows with the joys and sorrows of his wife. If Cecil, my love, ever gets hurt, I want to love her the way that Joe does. And older women, you're not, I'm not going to leave you out of this. You've, you've taught Cecil a lot. You've modeled sound doctrine to her, and you've taught her sound doctrine. Uh, is Agnes here? I don't think she's... She's teaching the kids. See, that is an example of sound doctrine. She's passing sound doctrine to the younger generations. Way to go, Agnes. Agnes allowed us to sit with her and her husband during Nicholas and G's wedding reception. And they were one of the first couples to really welcome us to this church. And they made us feel like we actually belonged here. Um, And she always loves that Agnes has a smile on her face. She's always content and happy. And a few weeks ago, she she told us, if you need anything, anything at all, just give us a call. Call the church if you have to to get our number, but just contact us if you need anything, anything. She emphasized that, anything. I was at 9th and O for almost three years. I didn't hear that from anyone. I mean, that, that's something I never heard. So thank you guys for, for that example here. Virginia, CISO loves how well you have shown love for Carl with his re- recent sickness. Um, every week she asks for prayer for Carl during the choir practice. And you've been married for five decades, right? 57 years. Wow. That is incredible. And uh, she loves that example. She hopes that she can love me for that long. <laughs> so thank you, guys. So I want you to see that you have been passing on sound doctrine, whether you think it or not. Well, I also want to say this, and we're getting close to wrapping it up. Intergenerational ministry or discipleship doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be weird, and it doesn't have to be time-consuming. You don't have to be a Yoda. You don't have to be a Miyagi. All right? Yoda's from Star Wars, you know. Be mindful of your trading, you know. Karate Kid, Miyagi, these hand wax on, these hand wax on, right? A little bit weird guys, but they're master disciples. But you don't have to be weird in order to disciple people well. I'll give you an example. Nate Brooks is the first guy who ever actually intentionally discipled me. And it was his first year as a seminary student. He came from a business degree, so he didn't have the training that I even had at that point. And he asked me to be his disciple or to be his pupil, whatever word you want to use, after just playing a board game one night. It's like, hey, like I've, I've seen you. I see a lot of potential in you. I just want to help you go further in the path. So he's like, um, can we just meet up one week at Starbucks? So, so we met at Starbucks. But we both hated Starbucks. I just didn't say it because I wanted to be kind to him, but he didn't like it either. So I mean, you don't have to do something that someone likes in order to be you know, a, a disciple to them. So he asked me what he thought our relationship would look like from a you know, master to disciple kind of relationship. And I, I don't remember how I answered, but I answered in some way. Then right after that, he said, yeah, that's not what it's going to look like. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you don't even have to meet the expectations of other people that they have for you. He just describes what we would, what we would do. He's like, we're going to meet once a week. If you have questions, you're going to ask them. I'm going to answer them. If you don't have any questions, I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to answer them. But... I mean, that was some of the greatest ministry I've ever received. It was even greater than a lot of the classes I received at Boyce because he was allowed to be so personal and so precise because he knew me. 
he actually knew about my life, and so he knew what I actually needed to hear, more so than sometimes professors will see or hear. But we also did activities together, like frisbee golf or something, and we both were terrible at it. So, I mean, even if you're going to do an activity with the person you're discipling, you don't have to be good at it. <laughs> but by his discipleship, he really invested a lot into me, and I was greatly impacted by it tonight. I was more prepared for marriage and more prepared for ministry because of Nate Brooks. And he only discipled me for a year, only a year. But I, I can still today tell you some lessons that I've learned from him. So I'll give a few suggestions in closing. Older men and older women, first of all, be an example. If I haven't covered that in this sermon, I don't know what else I have covered. Be an example. Second, talk. Just talk. Tell the stories of your life. You've been around longer than we have. Tell what you've read, tell what you've heard, tell what you've seen, tell what you've done. And warn us whenever we, in our foolish youth, are about to make a mistake. Don't let us, well, sometimes you have to let people walk into their foolishness before they'll actually listen to you. That's, that's in Proverbs. But try to warn us if you see a mistake on the horizon. Um, don't be afraid to offend us. We, we need to be offended because we don't need to be fools. We need to be wise people who model sound doctrine. So first, be an example. Second, talk. Third, pray and think about asking at least one person to be able to invest into them. Um, ask him or her for permission. Don't just walk up and say, hey, you're going to be my, my pupil. That probably won't go well. Um, if they say no, after you ask them, don't be offended. Just look for another person to, to invest into. And if he or she says yes, pick a time to meet, pick a place to meet to determine how often and how long you'll get together whenever you do. Just learn about him or her and speak truth to him or her. It's really that simple. So be an example. Talk. Find one person, at least one person to invest into. Younger men and younger women, first look for an example. Um, ask that person that you really want to be like to, to consider mentoring you. If they say no, don't be offended. Just look for someone else. And if they do say yes, be flexible to their schedule and to their demands. Second, listen well. I mean, older people have been around, around a lot longer than, than we have. The, the chances are that they know something that you don't know. The chances are that they're right whenever they think you're wrong. So listen to them. Actually, listen. Third, look for ways to serve the older generation. Life gets harder the older we get. I even recognize that as a... How old am I? 23? I don't know how old I am anymore. I think I'm 23. <laughs> Life gets harder the older we get. Seek for ways to bring some relief for the older people. So the older generation in this church has blessed me so much. You've taught me so much. You've modeled so much. You've taught my wife so much. You've modeled so much to her. I really want to thank you for that. But I want you to see that you've really done a lot without even really trying. So imagine what you could do if you did try. The sound doctrine of our Lord would shine brighter than any field of snow outside. And the reverence for God would be louder than any passing train, which we hear all the time. So let's pray. God, I am thankful for your word.